Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to 3RRR. Big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for the last hour. We've got you for an hour of science now, and very excited I am because in the studio with me are a couple of people. Uh, Chris KP, good morning. Hello there. It's grand to be in here with, um, you know, a cast of three i know I, you know i swabbed you down with alcohol you seem to be okay i had to ask yes thank you <laughs> dr Ewan. i'm sorry you have to sit so close to him it's all right he does smell nice and clean mm. so yeah he smells clean he's doing pretty well no, it's good to have you guys in the studio it's nice um good to have people around yes i agree yeah and i feel very protected by these pieces of perspex so, yes, I, think, I, feel, I, I think the fact that there's more of us on this side means that you're the exhibit. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I actually think the Perspex is there just to sort of, because it's a bit, you know, sort of frosted, so I don't mm. have to look at you the way, <laughs> the way it's I used flattering. to. Yeah. <laughs> it's very nice. Um, now, we're gonna, we've got a big show ahead. Uh, we've got three guests coming up later, which is going to be pretty cool. From all over the country, I should say. This, uh, you know, from various different states. Uh, we've got all the states that currently have COVID um, wandering around covered, I think, um, <laughs> and Victoria. Um, so that's all good. But uh, we're going to start off with some news. Chris KP, do you want to start us off? Uh, I'm very happy to start you off. I, I stumbled upon this story uh, during the week, and I sort of I started reading it and went, oh, yeah, that's kind of cute. And then, you know, sort of not, not threw it away, just sort of moved on from it. And then the more I thought of it, the more I thought, no, there's a number of elements to this that are actually quite appealing, not the least of which is the title of the paper, um, <laughs> but, I'll, but I'll get to that. So first things first, um, this comes from, uh, I, think, I think it's three authors, one of whom is based at uh, La Trobe Uni, as it happens. The others are in New York, I believe, and they're, they're animal psychologists, so they're interested in the behaviour of animals and what makes yeah. them tick. But of course, the problem is that you know, if you're any researcher, um, apart from someone who's completely stuck behind a computer screen, um, you know, for the last twelve months, has been basically trying to find ways of doing their, their field work, as it as it were, yeah. yep. in a constrained state. So these guys basically produced a citizen science opportunity and put the word out on the street and said, "Hey, go nuts!" They sent the information out, I believe, to five hundred people, um, or it got to five hundred people, or five hundred people started, or something like that. But only thirty finished it. <laughs> so the return rate, which is one of the big problems with citizen and science, yep. the, complete, the quality completion rate was very low. What they did, though, is they were looking at... So every, anyone who has got a cat probably knows that cats will often just climb into a small space, box. Yeah, they like a box. Draw, yeah, yeah little yeah. corner, something like that, if they can. Hmm. The thing is, what these guys are trying to find out is, it, is it the three-dimensional nature of that space the cats want to get into, or is it just the two-dimensional nature of it? So what they were providing people was sending out was, was something you can print out on your home printer. It's one of those things that um, uh, it's called a kinesia illusion. Basically, it's imagine the circles with the corners cut out. Oh yeah, and you yeah. put them in a in a square shape. It looks like there's a square or a rectangle when there actually isn't. <laughs> that would seriously mess with the cat. Yeah, so they're saying okay, so print this thing out, pl- and they had all of them place it this far apart. They had they had a control version which is the reverse of that, so it's better yep. shape. And see what your cat does and film it for us. And there were all kinds of parameters. Your cat had to have all four limbs inside the space mm. for three seconds, I think, to be counted in. Um, but of the 30 cats that completed this, nine of them, which is not an insignificant number, were very happy to walk in the room, choose the space that wasn't there, 
and sit down <laughs> very specifically inside that space. Oh, my God. Isn't it cool? Now, the cool thing is that if you get online, now, you can actually download this stuff now. You can keep doing this. I mean, the paper's written, um, but it's been done. But it suggests that there's something about the nature of a space that's much less than three-dimensional. I've that or cats are stupid. Um, that, <laughs> that means that cats are quite happy to sit in a thing that isn't even there, even if... They think it is. Um, so I love this story, partly because it's researchers doing their research, partly because it's people contributing data to it, mm. partly because it shows how you can have a, a quality control over that data, but also it actually, albeit with a tiny sample size, does show, yeah, there's something in this about what cats see in the world and how they behave. But like I said, I love the fact that the title of the paper captures this in such a nice balance of the very scientific and the mother less scientific. The title of the paper is this. If I fits, I sits. <laughs> a citizen science investigation into illusory contour susceptibility in domestic cats, Felis sylvestris catus. But I really like if I fits, I sits. So it's I, fantastic. If you, if you want to get online and look for that, you'll be able to find the the, uh, the stuff to download. You can have a crack at it yourself. And I think the researchers, from what I can tell, would love you to. Well, can, can I just say this? Um, this brings up a, a, a hope that I've had for quite a while that I wanted to do. And there might be an extension of this work that maybe the little trade person could get involved sure. in. Um, you probably, you know, social media often tells me what I should be buying. I'm not yeah. sure how this happens. You, you guys may have experienced this. Oh, I totally. think it's just me, but uh, you know, if it's happened to others, I feel a little better. But it, it did tell me that I should be buying this adhesive, large adhesive sticker for the floor that looks like a black hole. Oh, and so geez, what I, I wonder why I told you that. Yeah, Shane. I don't know. Um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> keep spending, and this is where you end up. <laughs> um, but what I want to do is I want to stencil this bugger onto the the ground on Swanson Street and just see how many people walk around it. Oh, I think that's oh, I like that idea. Would that not exceed? The I think we need experiment? them all over Melbourne. In fact, with <laughs> some cameras on them, right? So there's, so there's, there's two points. There. One is I think that's an extraordinarily good idea. Thank the you. other is that is why you were getting these ads. <laughs> <laughs> well, I may have googled how to make people walk around things on the street. And yeah. these ads have been coming up ever since. But I, I think it would be a cool psychological experiment, especially yeah, if yeah. it was sort of the artificial contour version yeah. where yes. it's clearly not a real object, just to see how many people would happily step over it. Yeah. And how many, I mean, because you know there's a lot of people in society who also, you know when you get the people with beautiful um, you know, artworks on oh, yes. chalk drawings, chalk drawings. Things, and they're really convincing. Yeah, really amazing. Really but convincing. there's people who will just walk over those too. Yeah, yes. So yeah, yes. if they're willing to walk over those, they'll definitely walk over a black hole. Yeah. Um, but there's maybe, a lot of other people who yeah. won't. Yeah. Yeah. Find a, um, there are a couple of good Melbourne-based chalk artists. Maybe one of them can draw one of these. That's a damn yeah. good idea. If you're a chalk artist and yeah. you're listening, please draw some black holes Send on the pavement around the city. And it would be fun to randomise it and put trapdoors in some of them. <laughs> just a few. Just draw it over an element of draw over, Yeah, just draw one over a manhole without the cover. Exactly. Nice. Or even just some sound effects. So if you stand on it, you hear. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, I think. Uh, um, oh, dear. Look, I should say, uh, Dr. Jen is unwell today, so was unable to come in, which is why, folks, I do apologise for the, um, the gender imbalanced they on the show and you can see what happens yeah why why we need a good gender balance on the show because we we very quickly um degrade into you know very very poor poor communication i think jen putting the gen back in gender balance (laughs) missing well played well played and exactly what i'm talking about uh dr ewan what do you got for us i want to talk about where we think undiscovered species might be so as we know on earth we don't even know how many species we have 
and it's estimated that roughly 85% of species still haven't been described, which what, is a staggering number. Well, yeah, fungi, yeah, fungi. probably many plant species as well. Um, yeah, basically anything that's not a mammal or a bird or a reptile or an amphibian. Um, lots yeah. of marine species, of course, as well. So, yeah, 85% is a lot. And mm. considering that with, you know, species numbers probably in the, in the tens of millions, potentially. And so there was a study that was uh, come out in Nature, Ecology and Evolution where they asked this question and said, well, if you were to look where would we most likely expect to find undiscovered mm. species? And the way that they did that was they basically looked at just just for land vertebrates, so mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, so only ones that occur on land, so it's about 30,000 species roughly. And they looked at the ecological traits, they looked at their associations with habitat, etc., from existing species that they know, we know about, and then they mapped that across the world. And what they found was that they could then map that and show exactly where if you were to look for species that were undiscovered, so to speak, uh, we would find them. And it turns out that roughly 10% of the um, Earth's undiscovered species are probably in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And then another uh, 5% each for Madagascar, Colombia and Indonesia. And basically, if you're thinking about this, I'm sure you're already jumping to the conclusion that these are areas, probably large areas with rainforests, right? So if you look around the world, parts of Africa, probably Papua New Guinea as well and so forth, these really large areas of rainforest. And Importantly, they estimate that roughly 10% of the Earth's surface probably encapsulates 70% of these undiscovered species. And and the importance of that is that that allows us to plan for conservation. Mm. So unfortunately at the moment we have this, I guess, situation where we know we are killing species off that we don't even know exist. Can I, can I ask yeah. where the, how one calculates the 85%? Yeah, so basically, as an example, with insects in the past, what they've done is they've gone into rainforests and they do what's called misting or gassing, and so all the insects fall to the ground, and then they look at those insects and say, okay, how many of these insects do we know about already? Right. And then you can say, okay, well, we only know 5%, so that means 95% in this area are undescribed, and so you can extrapolate a little bit. And so that's been done for various groups where we said, okay, well, how much survey effort has there been, Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth, and then you can calculate an estimate of how much is likely to be discovered. And of course, also with genetic techniques in the last couple of decades, more and more we're looking at you know, a species that looks, for all um, intents and purposes, the same, you know, from an Mm. appearance sense, Mm. you look at their genetics and they're 5% or 10% different. So you split them into two species. So that's happened recently for things like greater gliders. They're now Mm. three species. Sugar gliders got split into three species and so forth. Mm. So the important thing of this is that it allows us to say, okay, well, we know that there's likely to be a whole bunch of species in these areas that are undescribed, so we really need to put conservation you know, actions into place, i.e. national parks and so forth, to mm. conserve these areas because they have a disproportionate amount of biodiversity relative yeah. to their area. So it's, it's a fairly important study and it's pretty pretty neat um, science that goes into yes. it, I think. Yeah. Do, do we have a feel at the moment, one of the things I've always found fascinating is the fluidity of species. You know, So mm. one gets removed or two get created. Yeah. Do we have a feel for whether that is increasing at the moment with all the climatic changes and so forth or whether it's still the same you know that that the 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 rate of change yeah i mean obviously yeah some species can fill another species niche if one disappears Mm. i think it really comes back to the group that you're talking about so as an example if you get rid of the great white shark 
probably not a lot that's going to fill its niche, right? Yep. It's a yep. big animal top of the food mm. chain. There's not that much that's going to replace it. Whereas maybe if you're talking about a small fish species or an insect or something where there might be literally scores yeah. of species that are relatively similar, mm. maybe there's not as much consequences. But we also know that, you know, natural selection can occur really quickly. So mm. people often think that, you know, evolution and natural selection is a really long process. But, you know, example is the um, mosquito in the subway of London mm. That evolved really quickly to feed on commuters in the subway in London, yeah. right? So yeah. it can happen quickly. So yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna get a hammerhead shark. No, any time you're a screwdriver shark is yeah. not going to come out next week. No. But, but you will get different insects uh, very quickly. Yeah, there is a there is um, apparently a film that's come out. I think it's on Netflix uh, where apparently a whole bunch of chemicals have rained down on Earth, and now we have these massive beasts running around on Earth, which I'm pretty keen to have a look oh, at yeah, from yeah. A, from an evolution and natural <laughs> selection perspective. Jeez. So yeah, that yeah. sounds uh, sounds potentially very <laughs> scary. I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, now, folks, uh, just an FYI before we go to a break, our guests today are all on. Uh, thanks to Elodie f- from A Pint of Science, um, which is a, a great program, international program, that's coming up in Australia um, just over a week away. I think it starts on the 17th. Exciting. So um, there's a whole lot of activities there. And, of course, you know, that's all, um, I'm going to use the word, pivoted to online um, <laughs> as it did last year. And But some really great things. We're going to have three guests on that are, that are part of those programs um, very shortly but if you want to have a look at all the things that are online they've got a lot of a, a live events there's some pre-recorded events there's some really cool stuff um, trivia nights in fact I'm, I'm one of the co-hosts of one of the trivia nights so I, I love that because I get to ask questions and I don't need to know the answers, which is kind of cool nice. for me. Um, yeah, as I'm getting older, it's, it's helpful to <laughs> be on that side of things. <laughs> but um, it all runs between the 17th and the 28th of May. So just uh, Google Pint of Science um, dot or just pintofscience.com.au and you should be able to find everything that um, you need there. And we'll be talking to some of, some of those guests in just a little while. So, folks, we're going to take a, a break now for some tunes and we'll be back in just a few minutes with our first guest for today. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 Triple R. We have our first guest on the line now. His name is Sven Usman. He is an archaeologist and heritage specialist from the School of Social Sciences at the University of Western Australia. Thanks for getting up early on a Sunday morning, Sven. How are you going? Oh, good. Thanks yourself. Thank you for having me. Oh, look, it's great to have you on. I mean, you're working in such an interesting area where... Uh, you're doing a lot of the dating and, and the investigation and looking at some of our oldest um, works of art, I suppose you'd call them in many regards, um, from our indigenous populations here in Australia. I mean, first of all, before we talk about the specifics, how did you get into this particular line of work as an archaeologist? Well, sort of through a wrong turn, I suppose. I, like a lot of people of my generation, thought Indiana Jones was great. Of yep. course, today we know he's essentially a tomb robber and such like. But <laughs> I always knew I wanted something that combined the outside and thinking about it. Um, my mother wanted me to do law. She still does. And, in fact, there's a very interesting field of heritage law, so I actually do do a bit. Um, but it, it's a really nice bridge between the arts and the sciences, and it, it provides sort of cultural reference to otherwise abstract um, scientific concepts to a lot of children, for example. Mm. Fascinating stuff. Now, one of the things that I noted in the information you sent through to me, which I you know, felt kind of guilty, I didn't already know about this, but just the sheer number of archaeological sort of in rock art sites that are around in Australia. I mean, throw that number at us because it's quite extraordinary. 
I will do. And sorry, it was remiss of me. I just want to acknowledge the Noongar Wadchuk land on which I'm currently um, standing. But yeah, archaeology and rock in general and rock art in particular is Australia's great unrealized treasure. Mm. So in the small part of the eastern Kimberley where we're working with Balangara peoples, well, small, it's 30,000 square kilometers, yep. small by Kimberley terms. Um, we've since 2013 with our various project partners recorded about 1300 archaeological sites, uh, most of them rock art sites. And they date from between 50,000 years to essentially yesterday. So they show a fantastic scope across the country. And part of it's a, part of the ignorance in the general population, certainly not having a go with anyone at anyone. It's, it's a systemic problem. But we've got 60,000 years of history, but focus on the last few hundred years too much. Um, mm. There have been changes in the curriculum, not without controversy. But our work, we like to think, is able to provide substantial, scientifically verified and culturally relevant facts about this vast sweep of history that we have. I mean, we're one of the, the great art provinces of the world, really, and we, we're just too modest about it. Yeah, I think everyone uh, everyone gets pretty excited, don't they, when uh, something new is found in Egypt, um, you know, that's, a let's say, a few thousand years old. And that's great. I mean, I'm all for it. Love Egyptology. Fantastic. But you, you're talking about stuff that ranges 50,000 years. I mean, one, one of the questions I'd ask you is, how the devil has some of this stuff actually lasted over such a period of weathering and, you know, how's that happened? Absolutely. I mean, you, you, you're quite right in saying, well, we do need to focus locally and then fit it into global context. So, you know, globally, 50,000 years, we're, we're well before the pyramids, for example. Mm. It is amazing, the preservation, when you think where we are working is the tropical north of Australia today. And over tens of thousands of years, there would have been more of the Kimberley, approximately another half a million square kilometers that's now underwater. And you've had ice ages, you've had cyclones, you've had all sorts over the years. Yet we have rock art that the rock art dating project, it's an Australian Research Council project with multiple partners, Kimberley Land Council, Bangara, Rock Art Australia, Department of Biodiversity Conservation Attractions, and all the project partners, traditional owners. We've got sites from a few hundred years old, the, the dating of the, of the rock art, through to um, what was announced a few weeks ago, the oldest known in situ rock painting, which is 17,500 years ago. So to put that in context, we're just coming to the end of the last ice age so it's it's not an easy environment but people are making rock art they're thriving and they make this amazing pigment they grind it very fine so this is where the science comes in this is essentially chemistry it's great to teach it through the csro stem professionals in school at remote locations or what to us are remote locations yep. i had someone in columbaroo tell me perth's a bit remote isn't it um, <laughs> yep. what you have is you have a binder a loader a pigment an extender and they combine really well with the sandstone. It's essentially a mineral stain on the sandstone that lasts thousands of years through bushfire, cyclones, mm. all of these. So it's it's a tribute to the the, the the genius of the people making it. And they didn't just do it once or twice. They did thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands. And if you count individual images, millions and even tens of millions of images. Mm. It, it is extraordinary. So, so in all that, I mean, I, I think... I suppose one of the things that we don't think about very often is when we focus on all of these sites that are there, there must have been a very large number of sites that have been lost. Do we have any feeling for like, you know, just, just how much of it has been lost over such an extended period of time? 
very timely question. Just this week, colleagues, a co constellation of colleagues from uh, across Australia published two papers on the first peopling of what was then Sahul, what we yep. might call Australia today, and population estimates. And for the first time, they took into account what is now underwater, the land that is now underwater, and how many people might have been there. And I've modeled a figure of 6.4 million Aboriginal yeah. Australians, which is quite a lot more than what people had thought before. So, um, we do have an idea through modelling of the sites. Other colleagues working off the northwest shelf in the Dampier are looking for terrestrial sites now underwater and are starting to find them. So by modelling the bathymetry, the underwater topography, we can predict based on what we find on land where they would have lived in the past. So we've only found a handful of the actual sites so far. I say we, I mean archaeologists, I haven't done any of this. Um, and we can then model how many people might have been there. But there will be many sites, you know, the oldest sites, currently Majabebe at 65,000 is the oldest site, but there will probably be older ones, almost certainly, that are now underwater and, and lost to us. And so a part of the work we do now is not just research, but site and conservation management with rangers, land managers and such like. Um, because though you will lose some sites each year, inevitably through natural processes, we want to hang on to it and record it as long as possible. As I say, it is part of our natural National heritage estates, every bit as important as, as every other bit of heritage we have. Yep, absolutely. Now, when we talk about some of these sites that are a little older, like the 50,000-year one, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but does carbon dating get us back that far? I, I sort of had in my head that it was a bit short, short in the yeah. tooth in, in that regard. Just um, forty to 50,000 years is where radiocarbon can get you, particularly through the accelerator mass spectrometry version of it. But always in archaeology, we try for more than one dating technique. All mm -hmm. dating techniques have slight wiggles and flaws, slight, not major. And so the 50,000 site, for example, we paired radiocarbon dates with OSL dates, optically stimulated luminescence, and basically dating the energy in sand grains. And when you use more than one scientific method, those if, if there's a problem, you'll have different dates. But if they are giving you the same dates, then you have high confidence that those dates are correct. And so that's what we did at the habitation site. That's not a rock art site. Um, it's interesting with traditional owners, um, they're singularly unimpressed with the site, other than to say it's a good place for fishing, mm -hmm. um, and are much more excited about the finds we have of shelters where there are old rusted keratons where known individuals camped in station time. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a great um, range from 50,000 years to today of how people have been on country and caring for country in various ways over over the time. But yeah, we like to use more than one different dating technique. The, the Rock Art Dating Project out of the University of Melbourne is using seven different techniques mm. to try and understand the landscape and the art. Wow. Now, um, before we let you go, Sven, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the, the schools for the program that you're involved with. What, what does that involve? Because obviously... You know, there is a very, very major shift required in the curriculums across our, I suppose, primary school level before we get anywhere else with regards to the historical value of, of what we're talking about here. Indeed. So uh, as a member of the Centre for Rock Art Research and Management, it's so named because we like the research seamlessly to flow through to management, which would include things like schools. Mm -hmm. Up until the big changes announced in the last few weeks, we've been working regularly, as I say, with the CRIS, CSIROs and um, STEM Professionals in School program works very well. Uh, particularly with Aboriginal children in, in areas far from centres and things. Uh, the Australian Archaeological Association has a great skills passport um, in which you can, it's a great tool for learning. We can sign off children, rangers, etc., drone, GPS skills. 
they sign off our cultural competence and the, those cultural safety and those kinds of things. With these changes coming, most teachers are asking, many teachers are asking us for professional development. How does it fit in? So there's a big job for archaeology across the country, and we do have the, the AAA Archaeological Association does have a national teaching and learning committee that is putting together resource materials. Um, it was doing before the changes, but particularly now, because teachers really need the content. Also, teachers are often afraid of offending Indigenous mm -hmm. people, which they shouldn't be. Uh, it's part of what every child should learn, and it's a skill we all need to master. And in archaeology and the social sciences in general, we need to both provide the, the, the facts, if you will, the, the material, but also ways in which it can be communicated in, in ways that are appropriate across the country, because not everyone is the same. You know, bottom, that all sounds very, well, that's a lot of work you know we're up for it we're you know get hold of us we, we, we'll um, happily help and uh, it's it's fun thing to do archaeology is a lot of fun i think that really needs to come through is that everyone has a, a history you don't have to feel ashamed of it or you know all these cultural wars that don't worry about it it's all great it's often all interconnected um in good and bad ways but the story of australia and of sahul is is a fascinating story it's a story of australia and it's a story of the world and hopefully it's also a story of the future in which we get lessons from the past we we fire management we're finding evidence of that way back that we are applying now yeah. um the, the culturally appropriate ways of communicating um it's a lot of fun uh, but it's also uh, a national priority and we we have the material and we're happy to help fantastic Spain. well look thanks so much for chatting to us today good luck with that ongoing work um it just is staggering listening to some of the numbers that you've suggested there in regards to population numbers and the sheer number of sites and so forth sounds like we need to breed a whole, whole lot more archaeologists and, and social scientists to help do that work and their funding is hard to come by in those particular areas so maybe we will think think twice about uh, supporting that a bit better in the future thanks for being a guest on einstein and gogo today Thank you very much, Shane and everyone. And um, I'm chained to my desk at least until next month when we go to the field. So if anyone's got any questions, just get hold of me. Excellent. Thanks so much. Folks, Bye. Folks, that was Sven Usman, who's an archaeologist and heritage specialist from the University of Western Australia. We're going to take a break now for some uh, more tunes. We'll be back with another one of the Pint of Science uh, recommendations for today in just a few minutes. Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to 3RRR in the studio with us now on Einstein and GoGo is Sophia Garlic-Bock. She is based in Sydney right now. She's a research and evaluation coordinator at Reach Out Australia. Good morning, Sophia. How are you going? Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. We're all part of this pint of science uh, big month coming up, so we wanted to get a few people in that were appropriate. Now, you've been looking into something that I'm not sure if people have heard about, this thing called the pandemic. But uh, it's obviously <laughs> a lot of people just cringed when they mentioned it. Um, but you've been looking at this sort of experiences, I, I suppose, in particular, young people in in this time and what's sort of going on there. And you've been running a fairly substantial survey. Tell us all about that. Yeah, so um, at Reach Out, we've been running a couple of different um, surveys and um, interviews with young people just to gain their insights. So this has been from when the pandemic started all up until this year as well. Um, we often talk with people, um, young people, and interview them and conduct surveys to get their insights on what's happening as well as how we can better develop resources for them. Mm. So throughout um, COVID, there are a couple of different stages. Obviously, there was a big mental health impact at the beginning, um, and we've been looking at kind of how that's kind of continued. And, and what sort of questions would you ask in the survey? Like, is, is there a question 
question around existential threat or, you know, like what, what sort of things do you, you put in a survey like this? Because it seems like, well, for one, first of all, we should probably cover has the survey shifted over time because the, the issues have shifted over time? What, what did that look like? Yeah, definitely. I think, well, Reach Out conducts um, yearly surveys with young people. And so obviously we added a bunch of different questions to ask about COVID experiences. But even before that, we added, had to ask um, some questions about um, bushfires and that sort of mm. stuff as well. So these things are changeable and adaptable. But um, we often ask young people about their well-being. They rate it themselves as well as um, more recently we've been asking them how, how they feel about the future and what their concerns are. Yeah. And so we have a bit of mixed methods approach where we have some quantitative questions as well as um, get their qualitative feedback. Yeah. And what, what sort of responses do you get? Because, I mean, even, you know, we're talking about young people here. I'm not sure what the age range is, but mm. even for us, you know, can I say slightly older people, um, we're feeling pretty crappy about some of this stuff too. So, I mean, what are you getting from the younger people? Yeah, yeah. So the age range is roughly around 16 to 25 um, in the surveys. And that's the people we support in at Reach Out as well. And um, we've got a range of, really range of experiences. So obviously they've reported that they've had a big increase in isolation as well as really um, felt they've lost a lot of milestones in the last year. But the, a lot of young people could really identify, um, could really identify how, um, you know, there's, there were some positives like being able to have time for self-reflection and a lot of them were really resilient. Mm. One really good thing we did find as well is that there's been a lot of increase in awareness of where to seek help. So like Reach Out or like Lifeline Lease sort of Services, there's been a lot more young people aware of where to seek help and being more willing um, to seek help as well. Mm. Are you finding they come across as well supported? I mean, I know I've just gone through, as many parents probably have, uh, a round of discussions with you know, with regards to um, parent-teacher interviews um, with my, my high school age son. And in many of those discussions, there were commentaries around, ah, but this is similar for the rest of the cohort and we think it's, you know, because of last year. Mm. Are you seeing a lot of that? Because it seems as though that, that support level and understanding from those they're interacting with is probably higher than we would normally expect, I would guess. Yeah, I think um, parents really supported their young people during the pandemic. We, we saw a lot of um, relationships um, with young people and their parents grow closer. You know, it's not mm. always going to be the same for every young person, but a lot of those were quite close. And parents also, we interviewed parents as well at some points and got their insights, and that's been really helpful for us to develop better resources as well. So parents have been a really critical group to help um, develop these resources. Mm. And, and in terms of the, you know, that change that's happened, you know, we've gone through that period where we all kind of thought, ah, oh, it'd be a couple of months, and then all of a sudden, you know, it looks like it's going to be a year, and then, you know, maybe we'll have a vaccine next year, and now, oh, we're going to have to live with COVID for, like, you know, we've gone through those shifts. Are you seeing changes as a result of that? Because presumably each one is a different degree of engagement with with our young people each of them brings in different levels of trauma there's there's a whole lot mm. of complex stuff there and the idea of i suppose recovery or whatever is hard to get your head around when we don't even know when it's going to stop or what it's going to look like in six months yeah definitely there's definitely been different stages so like i said there's that really immediate um quite impactful stage at the beginning so um, a lot of young people reported the existing mental health um um, feelings and that sort of well-being had decreased quite dramatically. Um, but then as time went on, there was a lot of COVID fatigue. So there's a lot of stress, but a lot of young people didn't feel they felt stressed or worried enough to seek help. So it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's good to encourage young people to continue to seek help if they um, are needing it. And then kind of um, more recently, 
our yeah more recent research has shown there's still a lot of concern about the future so being able to um get employment is a big thing as well and um concern about unknown and uncertainty especially in the short term longer term mm. future still, still um, young people still seem really positive which is good but the shorter term is still um producing a lot of worry and anxiety for young people yep so so just before we, we let you go um what's next for reach out australia you know in these troubling times like what's the next thing you're going to get up to in in this space Yes, so we're um, always developing more research and developing better content for young people. Our um, research and content is always co-designed with young people, so continually um, engaging young people at different stages. So, yeah, anyone can visit the Reach Out website um, if they want to. And um, if you're in distress or need other support, there's other supports out there like GPs as well as Lifeline and that sort of thing. Yeah. Look, it's excellent stuff. Glad glad to see someone's keeping an eye on it. And I know there are a lot of groups that are, but it's good that you're doing that in, in such a, a detailed, you know, research way, asking those questions and make, I, I always like hearing when the individuals you're doing the research on are part of the co-design. I always get worried when I yeah. hear about special medical stuff where, you know, the, the individuals or the patients aren't involved in any way, shape or form. That's very disturbing. So good, good to hear that's been done the right way. Sophia, thanks so much for chatting to us on Einstein and Gago and good luck with the ongoing stuff. Thanks so much, Shane. See you later. See ya. Thank you. Folks, that was Sophia Garlic-Block from Reach Out Australia. Um, she's one of the research and evaluation coordinators up there in Sydney. We're going to take a break for uh, some quick station announcements, and then we'll be back with our final guest for today, who's going to be in the studio, which is very exciting for us because we like actually uh, seeing people in the studio. Back in a sec. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're in the final throws of the show. Well, I shouldn't say that. There's 20 minutes to go. It's like a whole third, isn't it, Chris K. Pitts? That's rather more than the final throws. <laughs> doing, my, doing my maths. Uh, we have in the studio with us now Shawnee Amon. She's a PhD candidate in the Department of Ecology, Environment, and Evolution at La Trobe University. Shawnee, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Do you know we had your vice chancellor in here just last week? Yeah, you he said. <laughs> he's, probably, he's probably, no, he doesn't listen. No, he might be, he might be, he might be listening. He's quite very kindly yeah, about you. He follows me. <laughs> he mentioned you during his interview. No, he did not. Uh, don't listen to Chris KP. Um, now, you're you're looking at something that I suspect a lot of people uh, listening right now want to hear a lot about, and that is sleep. Um, I don't know, can you tell why the hell am I waking up at the moment at 3 a.m.? What is going on? Oh, it's all about stress. <laughs> it could be dehydration, overhydration. It could be anything. Is dehydration caused by alcohol consumption by any chance? Yes. Okay. <laughs> There's water in alcohol too, right? Alcohol consumption is terrible for your sleep. But it is, uh, I mean, Dr. Yon's right. There's water in alcohol, doesn't Just it? Maybe not the right ratio. <laughs> yeah, not, not quite the right, right ratio. Oh, boy. Um, you, can, yeah, you can see you're dealing with some novices in this, this room, Shawnee. Um, now, sleep is an interesting one to me because there's so much research going on in this space. And these days, there's entire sleep centers people can go to. And I've seen pictures of some of these sleep centers. And I think... If I went to those things, the last thing I would do would be to sleep because they look like they attach you to a lot of wires and stuff. So many wires. Yeah, we yeah. actually run a subject at, at La Trobe where we, we were, um, where we make the students electrode up and try and nap for two hours, <laughs> and it's almost <laughs> impossible. So what, what's the, I mean, sorry, this is a bit off topic, but what what's the deal with those sort of centres? What are they trying to, like, what are they trying to do? So they're measuring uh, brainwave activity. So they do take a couple of, like, um, ocular muscular movements and things like that as well but mainly they're looking at how the brain is active throughout the night and then they can judge REM sleep versus your slow wave sleeps and then they can find things like the sleep apnea or restless leg right. syndrome and things like that yeah. oh, but sorry. it is terrible to try and 
sleep with all of them on. So did you say ocular muscular movements? How do you mean, you mean eyeball, eyeball, eyeball movements. muscle movements? Yeah. So they put an electrode kind of on your temple. Right. And then they... They might also film you as well, depending on what sleep lab you're in. So they'll have uh, electrical reading of your eye movements, but they'll also have video of your eyeballs just rattling around, particularly during REM sleep, which is rapid <laughs> eye movement sleep. Yeah. So. This is, sounds a bit but creepy. It doesn't sound the, very relaxing. The researchers are really interested in the, in the, you know, the, the scientific end of this, which is good because you know, video while you're sleeping is not flattering. Yeah, yeah. No one looks their Speak best. Speak for yourself, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> I urge you to video yourself. Yeah, I think, I think for Chris, Shawnee, we'd have to add, like, a drool monitor. I was, yeah. I was fishing Homer Simpson exactly yeah. that. Yeah. I just had to keep going. <laughs> well, look, I think there's a... Yeah, I think we're getting to the point. That there's there's a reason why we don't do this so much in humans, because we're, we're messy, right? We're, we're, we're gross. Yeah. Yeah. So... You you use flatworms now. Tell us a bit bit about these flatworms. What do they look like? Where do you find them? You know how disgusting are they? Do I get infested by them? Are they oh. in my gut? Give me the give me the works. They're so cute. I love them. <laughs> Um, so the ones that I look at are a freshwater species. They're okay. non-parasitic. There are parasitic flatworms, but those right. are not the ones I look at. Um, they're about a centimeter long, probably at their most. They're not very thick either. They're about one to two cells thick. Okay. They have what I, why I like them is they have a bilobal brain, so very similar to humans, where we have a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere. They actually sort of have that same structure, wow. which is what I really enjoy about them. And they're very simple, so they only have one hole that intakes food and outputs food, and they just kind of <laughs> slime around all over the place. So right. they are aquatic, and you find them in most freshwater rivers and things attached to rocks. You can find them on yabbies if you're going yeah. yabbying. And well, there's, there's so much in that. For, my first question is: a few cells thick. Does that mean they're transparent or translucent that you can see they're, through? Yes, they're very, very see-through. So one of the um, methods that I use for my pharmacology study, I actually feed them a an egg yolk dyed with black food dye and the reason i know that they've eaten is because they turn black this, this is a research project it's not just fun stuff right i mean it sounds like you're just having a lot of fun with these flatworms it's amazing and and why in the world would they have this type of brain sort of um separation i mean what in an evolutionary sense got them there to be honest i have no idea um because prior to them, you sort of, they are quite evolutionarily old. Prior right. to them, you have your sort of um, like jellyfish and hydra, which have mm. that nerve net. Mm. And then you have these flatworms that have a bilobal brain. But then as you evolve more, like um, fruit flies have a mushroom body type brain. Okay. So it's quite different. So we're not entirely certain why the flatworm has such a cool brain. But it is, the research says that it is more similar to a mammal brain than it is to other invertebrates wow that's bizarre stuff so in, in terms of you know whenever i think about these sorts of brains and think okay there's something extra there i mean what what sort of things can flatworms do i mean most things of that sort of you know that kind of species sort of stuff are pretty just reactionary you know like it's all just um you know it's hot i'll move away from it that's cold i mean you know um what what can they do what can flatworms do that's pretty much it oh, so much it. they yeah. really hate the light so they're very negatively phototoxic is what we call mm. it so if you shine a light on them they will try and get away from it as fast as possible right um that's funny because it goes right through yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty much it. They will they obviously they can sense food and they go and get food, but they're pretty stationary 
don't yeah. really do much animals, at least in terms of how I look at them. I don't study yeah. them in their natural environments. So. Yeah, I was really excited about flatworm earlier, but now I'm getting less excited. Um, <laughs> you're, so you're, I, I want to know what they're doing when they're resting. And and just about the flatworms, are these planarians? Are these our common planarians that we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. cool. So what are they doing when they're resting that's, you know, how we would think about rest? Is, is it really different? I mean, you know, obviously they have a very different sort of, I guess, way of life to w- what we have. What are they doing when they're resting? Um, they pretty much do nothing. So in that sort of rest period where they're sort of moving into sleep or they're inactive periods, they basically, when they're moving around, they're quite elongated. And as they rest, they really scrunch up to about maybe a quarter of their yeah. size and they just hang out. If you give them something where they can hide from the light, like a rock mm. or even a cover over top of the dish that they're in, they will move to yeah. under that. But they basically just hunker down and wait for anything to happen to them. So notwithstanding the fact that they have you know, a bilateral brain like us, is their sleep, quote-unquote, is it really similar to ours at all? Or is it just radically different because, as you're saying, their, their whole lifestyle and everything else is so different? So electrophysiologically, we don't know yet. That is one of my That's chapters exciting. that I'm looking at. Um, we had to come up with a new way to put electrodes in their brains because they are very partial to sliming around things so i've actually implanted an electrode into the brain of a flatworm and it sort of tore itself out of it because it has a a texture like congealed gravy almost and they heal pretty quickly so they're really hard to sort of pin down um behaviorally they sleep very similarly to us but electrophysiologically we're we're unsure yet when when you say pin down is that a figure of speech uh no so i had <laughs> so i have to try and immobilize them to yeah. put the electrodes in so i put them on a, a piece of um paper kind of and that sort of dries them out a little bit and then i drop water on them and then i have a glass electrode that i slowly lower until it looks like it smushes into their brains so i try not to pin them to the the ground because then the electrode goes through them but they're pretty stationary and then once they've had enough they just like ooze out so so that must be pretty sophisticated because when when we're talking about humans you know we generate quite a fair amount of electrical activity you know if you actually look at the voltage we generate so it's quite you know we could almost shock people with our brains but these little guys uh you know producing almost no electricity whatsoever i mean how do you measure that it's very hard (laughs) so i haven't gone too much into actually collecting data for this chapter because it is taking a lot of pilot research we're Mm. pretty certain that we've got it on lock and we know what we're looking for but we do have them in a faraday cage while we're doing it and we're trying to separate out what might be electrical noise coming from us or the equipment versus what's coming from the flatworms so we should should explain to people the faraday cage is something you uh, uh, you could make one by surrounding yourself with chicken wire essentially yeah and it stops any external electrical interference um, from getting in there. So it's kind of like a shield. Mm. In fact, if we ever send people to Mars, we're probably going to have to surround them in something akin to a Faraday cage to stop them dying of radiation. Um, yeah, interesting. So obviously they've got this bilabial brain, and you say they're sort of behaving similar to how we do when we sleep, but do, does it, do they shut down all the brain? Because you know with dolphins, right, dolphins can shut down one half. So they actually can still be kind of swimming, but they're sleeping. So... Do they do anything like that at all? Do we know whether they're we, shutting down different parts but not all of it? Or? We don't know. Yeah. Um, we There's only been one study that was looking at flatworms electrophysiologically and their flatworms died pretty soon after they implanted them. So we're just at the moment trying to make that not happen. Yeah. Once we can get it on lock, making sure we're in the brain and that they are sleeping, then we'll start moving the electrodes around to yep. different parts of the hemispheres. Yep. But unihemispheric sleep is 
a bizarre adaptation. Yeah, so it's bird, amazing. Birds have it, and <laughs> yep. then uh, dolphins and seals, but yep. most mammals yeah. don't. So yeah. it's really strange. How, how do you wake a, a flatworm up? Mm. How do you know? How do you know? Little bell. So, Little bell. <laughs> I had a really fun time. This is actually my honours research was characterising sleep in the flatworms. And I basically have these little disposable pipettes, which is almost like a plastic eyedropper. And I suck them up into the eyedropper and then I expel them out of the eyedropper into their environment again. And they oh. really don't like it. And then they move around for a yeah. little bit and then they settle down. And then when they settle down, I just suck them back up. And right, yeah, yeah. So you just like a cat, you pick them up and pop them down. You yeah. know, they've got yeah, abduction stories, don't you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're all talking to their mates going, this is what happened to me. I got yeah. sucked up and then I was asleep. And then no one believes that. that someone pro- probed me with exactly. electrode. <laughs> I was, I was going to ask about. Um, so you, you mentioned the being very slimy. Um, so is is that for, uh, question one is is that a defence mechanism or is it just the nature of the beast, so to speak? The other is the slime that they produce that you're dealing with. Is that stored inside them or do they produce it at the you know, at, when required? Is it on call? Yeah, I'm not actually certain. It is it is quite slimy. Um, I think they do produce it naturally. It's kind of hard to tell because they are aquatic, so they're always yeah. kind of wet mm. and slimy. Um, but I noticed because I change their water every three days that if it is maybe later in that third day, it is a lot more slimy than it would have been that morning. So I think it is a bit of a defense mechanism. Maybe it's cleaning, like self-cleansing. Mm. Maybe it's just a byproduct of their movement. I'm actually... Not certain, but yeah. it is unpleasant to deal with. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's sort of stuff that you just can't you just can't get off your hands once it's yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah, so it's some sort of oily. So it's probably something you know for them that's very important in terms of making sure that the wrong fluids don't get to their, their yeah. bodies, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, I imagine so. Another reason to bump elbows rather than shake hands. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, Julie, in terms of um, your work, I know. So what what I love about this is the idea that you're going to be comparing the original flatworm and its sleep and so forth with the flatworm and let me get this right which you have cut the head off and then let the head grow back and you want to see if that head works like the old head yeah yeah (laughs) so yeah so i'm cutting their heads off and then i'm hoping that the butts sleep like the old heads or behave like the old heads once the butts regrow their brains and do they regrow the, grow the same sophisticated brain that we were yeah, talking about before yeah so they are they completely and utterly regenerate everything which is really really fascinating um so i'm just hoping i'm actually either way i'm happy if they match completely or if they don't it's going to be really exciting yeah so so in terms of so you must have quite a sophisticated model with regards to the sleep patterns before you do that and, yeah. and then you're matching that up, is that right? So this study will probably be more of a circadian study than a sleep study as okay. such, um, but they are quite distinct in their um, circadian rhythm. So they are quite nocturnal because obviously they don't like yep. light. Um, so it should each, – each worm has a personality. Once you put enough worms together, obviously the personalities uh, in the data don't show, but individually there's quite a lot going on. So it'll be fun to see what exactly they're doing. Yeah. And if the, the new brains behave exactly like the old ones or if they are their own personality. Yeah, because, that, I mean, if they behave exactly like the old ones, I suppose that brings in some question of is part of the information in that brain stored elsewhere in the body, just in terms of the information that's been collected during its lifetime, but also how much of the body encodes all the necessary information for those sleep patterns. So, so that, are you able to distinguish between those two? Um 
not at the level, not in the time frame that I have. That would mm. be something that we would hopefully look at after I've sort of got this initial data down. Mm. Because the flatworms have, it's called a ventral nerve cord, and they've got two of them that run down the body from the brain, very much like our spinal cord. Yep. So obviously that doesn't get, that is part of the cut in the in the tail end. So is the information for the circadian rhythm stored in those ventral nerve cords, or does it need the whole brain, or where does this information come from? Is it a byproduct of these animals know when the lights turn on and off, and that's why when they sleep, or is it... Yeah, hmm. who knows? It's yeah. very exciting. And look, this is just me being a bit, bit nuts about these things, but um, why is it that the body regrows the head and the head doesn't regrow the body? Oh, the head does regrow the body. Oh, the head regrows the body too? Yeah. yeah. There's nothing oh, wasted. Nothing wasted? No. no. So are they... If they if they can get you know essentially attacked in this case by you um, and, half, and, then, and that's possibly a very aggressive term, but, yeah, but then regrow. <laughs> how do they die? Oh, it's real hard. Right. It is really hard to kill a flatworm. Um, they don't like electric shocks, which <laughs> <Whips>. was. <laughs> It was an accident that happened, but yeah, they don't like that. Um, Certain chemicals they don't like. They're really adverse to metal. Mm. Wow, interesting. Um, Presumably drying out as well. Yeah, drying Mm. out, but they're very hard to kill. Are they something's prey? I don't actually know. I don't know what would... I imagine fish, like yeah, small maybe fish. maybe crayfish and stuff as well. Yeah. I feel like they're going to take over the world eventually. That's yeah. what I... My fear. Along with, along with octopus, I think, maybe. I, for one, together. welcome our flatworm overlords. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's fascinating to me, like, um, this sort of regrowth stuff in that, because presumably there must be... Is that a stem cell-based type regrowth? Do we know what's allowing that to happen? I'm pretty certain it is stem cell-based, but... It's definitely not my area of expertise, mm. but I, from what I have read, it is stem cell completely. So. Yep. And how many of these flatworms have you got on the go at a given time, like in the study? Like how many How many represents N equals okay? You know? So my pharmacology study, I had 499 that I analysed. I definitely had more than that that didn't eat the egg yolk, which right. was the key yep. there. At the moment, I'm taking care of about... 800 of them. Holy cow. Wow. But yeah. they're very small and very easy to take care of, so it's not yeah. as strenuous as it sounds. Yeah. Well, look, um, Shawnee, it's fascinating stuff. How long have you got until your PhD is complete? I'm hopefully going to submit next March. Fingers oh, crossed. That's, that's not far <laughs> away at all. That's, that's pretty good. Um, well, look, this, it's, it's fascinating to see how we, we learn from these sort of very small, very small creatures um, about how sleep might, you know, be different for all sorts of, of creatures across the world but um fascinating stuff i'm gonna have a visual of you waking these little guys up um by sucking them into an eye drop and back <laughs> out i'm sure there are pictures of you in flatworm world um <laughs> as chris kp said like yeah, this abduction <laughs> these abductions going on um but it's it's fascinating stuff thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today and and good luck with the rest of your phd thank you thank you for having me excellent folks that was shawnee amon he's a phd candidate in the department of Ecology, Environment and Evolution at La Trobe University. We're almost out of time. What do you two got planned for the rest of the day? It's Mother's Day, I, I should say for some, not for all. Not everyone has a good day today. It's very tough and big cheerio to those out there who are having a rough day today. But how about you two? I've got to pick the kids up for starters. They're actually in uh, with the brother-in-law and sister-in-law at the moment and then a bit of basketball this afternoon, but hopefully taking it relatively easy and taking care of Jen, obviously. So. Yeah, it doesn't sound like she's too good. No, nah, she'll be okay. Yeah. She's a bit run down, but she'll talking be Talking right. too much. <laughs> I should say, what? Teaching too much. Teaching, teaching too much, which involves a lot of talking. It's a fine <laughs> line. <laughs> I'm going to see my mum. Oh, there you go. Very she nice. She must be thrilled. 
<laughs> She's been dreading this day for yeah. months. Hello to Chris's mum. <laughs> Hello to Chris's mum. <laughs> Folks, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. We're going to hand over now to the team from Eat It, who are going to take you through until one o'clock. I uh, saw Cam walking before. He looked pretty excited. He, I think he has some good guests or something today. He looks very excited today. Remember, science is everywhere. Thanks for supporting Triple R. We will chat to you again in about a week's time. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.